welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. And I'm Adam Grossman. As we talked about early in, in season two, there were going to be more episodes of, of Adam and I talking um, without a guest. And we thought this was a good time with so many things going on in sports with you know, the NBA All-Star Game, the Super Bowl, and, and the Winter Olympics. And so Adam and I have a, a, a several different topics that we'll cover today. But, but first of all, how are you, Adam? Doing well. I was just kind of like what you're saying. It's a lot to sports to take in, particularly. We didn't even talk about the NHL All-Star Game. There's just a lot happening. So oh, yeah. Looking forward to talking all about it. Hey, there's a lot happening right now. I think that, you know, one thing you and I were talking about before we got started was was the Winter Olympics and, and the level of engagement around the Winter Olympics. You know, I, I'm a huge Olympics fan in general, but I think this was a very unique Olympic Games overall. And I you know, wonder just sort of level of engagement around the Olympics in general. Yeah, I think there's some interesting confluence of multiple factors that you and I both talk about in our classes, uh, which I think was one of the reasons we want to talk about it today. Uh, one of the things that um, the, the one of the main takeaways from at least a sports business perspective around the Olympics was the relatively low television ratings. Um, these were some of the, the uh, both the Tokyo Olympics and now the Beijing Olympics. Um, have had some of the lowest television ratings of, of Olympic Games. Um, now, obviously, there we've seen an impact of uh, coronavirus and COVID on television ratings across all sports, particularly in 2020 and even heading into 2021. Um, there are some also non-sports factors that obviously contributed to the issues with the ratings, uh, given social political issues, whether with the uh, in China, whether and you know probably as you and I talked about it, you may want to tune into other podcasts or look at other publications to look at the social political implications. The only thing we would talk about, it, and this is something we do talk about in my class, is you know you have to you do have to understand social and political and economic consequences when thinking about the sports industry, particularly gl- given the global scale and nature of the sports industry and the idea that global and social issues will have an impact on on you know tangible sports business outcomes in this case television ratings is definitely something you need to consider now the economic and social policy maybe not on this podcast but the idea of um, something looking at the intersection of sports business government public policy is something we cover in my course and something we want to look at but one of the things i thought was interesting and this is really the intersection of of both of our classes is the impact of um, what we call the sportscape in the book, but also in the class, which is, you know, did one of the things that has impacted sports is the rise of technology and how people consume content. And COVID has made it difficult for uh, people to attend games uh, or attend sports, sporting events in a variety of different forms. But um, Pete Belacqua, who's one of the heads of NBC Sports, he made a specific comment that he thought that people not being in venues was actually impacting consumption of the games, both from a broadcast, particularly from a broadcast perspective, but also potentially from a streaming perspective. And that's something that's really interesting, something we discuss. You know, what is the impact of technology on attendance and can actually in-person attendance drive um drive consumption, content consumption outside of the venue. It's a question that's been something that the sports industry has grappled with since the advent of radio and then television more generally, and now is streaming and, and whether it's augmented reality, virtual reality, the metaverse, how is this all, how does consumption patterns change? But I think this is something does attendance impact consumption from a non live event perspective. It, it was something that was really interesting. It is really interesting. And I think that, you know, just from my own perspective, and I think some, some, 
I guess, tangential evidence that I have? I think the answer is yes, right? And, then, and if not even just with the Olympics, right? And we can get back to that. But if you look back over the last two years, I remember watching, you know, football especially, it felt so different without the people in in the crowd, right? It, whether that was on television or, or, you know, through the MLB app, or I'm sorry, through the, the you know, streaming to consume those things. Baseball to me never felt that much different because I always, I grew up in a baseball house, right? Baseball used to be on the AM radio in the garage. And so it was always kind of a background thing um, with the announcers sort of driving that. But I think you're right that the lack of attendance in venue has a lot to do with the lack of engagement otherwise. But I also wonder you know, you mentioned the social and geopolitical issues that are there as well. And I think that that's one thing, you know, talking about our, both of our courses, I think that's one thing that younger fans, younger viewers really do have a, have a, a strong view on, right? And and they're more in tune with that to say, hey, I understand these social political issues. And, and because of that, I'm not going to quote unquote pay with my attention and my eyeballs because of, of those things going on. I I don't know if you've seen the numbers from a ratings perspective overall, but it does seem like viewership and sort of advertisement, you know, dollars that were there do seem a little bit down from an Olympic perspective. Um, and I think that could have to do with many factors, right? Time zone being one of them. Right. I also think, too, and I, I don't know historically, you might know better than me, that summer versus winter Olympics, right, the, the, the level of engagement based on I think it can be regional, too, in this country, engagement with the, those games, you know, based on, on where you live in the country and, and your level of love for winter sports. Um, but it is interesting to see how the Olympics has evolved and, and how we consume those. Yeah, those are great points, particularly generational divide and the impact of social and political issues on the generational divide. Obviously, the impact of um, there's clearly been a conversation around the impact of should athletes take political stands. That's, again, something that, um, you know, people may or may not feel strongly about whether athletes should or should not. we talk about uh, so that's definitely something that will be interesting. It's something that sports organizations and decision makers are looking at: is there an age divide, a generational divide between older and younger fans? Um, also, is there if you look at other factors, whether it's age, income, ethnicity, um, education level, are there divides there that would potentially change consumption patterns around geopolitical issues? Um, you're definitely right. In general, my um, thinking off the top of my head is that I think there is almost definitely higher ratings for the summer Olympics versus the winter Olympics. Definitely right about time zone issues. We talk in in the book, the sports strategist developing leaders for a high performance industry, which we use as the foundation of my class. We talk about um, various different Olympics and the idea of one of the things that NBC was considering is when Olympics are happening in different time zones and they're outside the primetime viewing window, which is uh, one of the primary ways that uh, the broadcast networks generate money is through advertisements in the broad, in the most heavily viewed times, which typically are the prime time, 8, 11, 8 to 11 p.m. Eastern times. Yet events are occurring and people know the outcomes of events because of the different time zones. Does that depress viewership? Um, there have been various different times where it seems like it has most of the time. Um, it seems like it hasn't actually most of the time or some of the time anyway, but 
Um, so it's not like a uniform yes or no case, but um, I do think it was and to your point. I think there were, even before this Olympics occurred, there was oh, numerous stories in the news how um, both um, partners, advertisers, and NBC were potentially expecting some issues with um, ratings and viewership for this Olympics specifically, and had planned accordingly. Um, but I did think that with the, the you know all of those things are interesting, but that's attendance driving consumption because typically people think of those as divergent like either if you make it easier for fans to consume content at home then it makes it more difficult for for uh, sports organizations to benefit from the revenue streams that come from in-person attendance at live events one of the case studies we talk about um in the book is about the ufc and the ufc actually leveraged the fighter um which was an original um reality tv show trying to get people more interested and because people became interested in the fighter it helped to uh, arguably save the ufc from bankruptcy and drove people to actual events so because they were consuming content that's always been historically that's been the narrative for why um increasing content consumption in whatever platform will in- increase live um live event attendance is more people are more likely to consume a content they're more likely to go in person and that teams can maximize what teams leagues uh, events athletes can maximize live event experiences if they're able to maximize content consumption it's more this has been more of a novel thing is that the opposite is also true um or it's not as maybe as discussed as much is that you need fans to be there so people will consume the content in the first place. It's something actually my co-authors and I talked about is that what is the importance? And at times I think I even argued the opposite that it wouldn't make that much of a difference, but that is interesting that this is something that sports industry leaders have specifically highlighted and articulated as one of the issues that um, among several, that this is one of the issues that could be depressing overall ratings and content uh, consumption. You're right. I mean, it's it's you're right in the sense that you know one thing we often talk about in my course is that the products, the at home experience versus the end venue experience, and you know for so many years the at home experience was designed to be a replication of that in venue experience, right? In some ways, that dichotomy is almost flipped these days, right? Because of all the engagement that you can have at home and the ability to do all the things that you would do at home. You look at how stadiums are constructed. You look at how venues are created. They're created to drive engagement, not just with the, the actual competition, right? With the other things around them, which, you know, has a, a feel of what you do at home. And I think it's, you know, they're two completely different products now, right? Uh, yes, I, I love to watch the NBA or, or the NFL, but I view them differently at home versus in the venue. And they're really sort of different products overall. And so I think it's interesting to see how that's continued to evolve and the consumption, like you said, some of those statistics and some of the metrics that we've seen around this year, I guess, you know, an interesting question that I came across this week, or I heard someone talking about this week is, do we think there is a day that we see the Olympics in the form that they are cease to exist? And I guess I'll expand upon that. And what I mean is this: the argument that the person was making was that there's so much money at stake. Uh, the viewership and, you know, is is the, the amount of people that are watching and so on. Would it benefit from each summer and winter Olympics having a permanent home like Los Angeles being a permanent home for the, the, the summer Olympics, like somewhere, you know, uh, in 
in Europe being a permanent home for the Winter Olympics because of the cost incurred to build the venues and those types of things. I thought it was an interesting argument because, again, I, I enjoy Olympics content and Olympics overall, uh, but there is a, a major cost from it, again, back to the geopolitical portion of it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the other big stories that have come out, not just from this Olympics, but from previous Olympics, is the cost of the Olympics far exceeded the projected budgets. And we talk about that in the context of um, both in my course and in the book about public support, particularly around the Olympics, um, from at least as far back, if not further back, than the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, where there's consistently been uh, issues with cost overruns with the Olympics. But I think those may be two separate questions. I think there's some ideas of whether the you know, the, the both, both are good questions, though, whether there should be permanent homes for the Olympics to eliminate the cost considerations. I think it's definitely uh, particularly given that some uh, locales, whether it's, you know, people point to Los Angeles as a, as a city that a, has hosted Olympics, but also has multiple pre-built venues that can be leveraged and that there are, are cities like Los Angeles throughout the world that maybe you could just leverage existing infrastructure given sports um, either that has been built or being built for other purposes besides the Olympics. And, you know, you just rotate those across multiple different continents. Um, and I think that's certainly worth exploring in and of itself. I think the idea of does the Olympics need to change also from a content consumption perspective for the reasons that you've articulated and we've talked about is a separate question that also is being asked, right? It is, you know, um, how much do the, the presentation events potentially need to be changed? Obviously, the Olympic committees themselves by adding new events, by um, um, tweaking the rules of certain events. Um, one example that I've talked about previously in other content that I've written about is wrestling and the idea of changing the rules in wrestling to increase point scoring um, to make sure that it's more exciting. Uh, adding in in the Olympics, you know, among several sports that have been added in, but either, you know, I think uh, it's surfing or three on three basketball, or even this in the Winter Olympics, there was mono sled as an example of a new sport that's being added. So, it's there. They're always constantly adaptions, and that is to in, increase. And but the, does there need to be something? Are there other things that maybe need to be changed? Is something that also we talk about. I think in both of ours is exactly both of our classes, which is do sports need to change given the changing uh, content uh, ways that content is consumed and how, what does that look like? And then if you are changing either rules or events, what does that mean for the traditions and history of sport? And, you know, obviously there are definitely people who like sports given that they are similar year over year, there are seasons, there are rules, there are records, um, there are star athletes who have achieved those records. If you change the rules, does that impact the integrity of the game will that impact future consumption at the same time you know businesses outside of sports constantly innovate and adapt new products um, and have to adapt their products and their core product offerings in order to adjust to changes in technology and, and platform and content and uh, audience behavior so it's sort of it's it's an interesting question i think the olympics brings all of those questions really to the forefront because of the global reach and the global attention that is put on the games yeah, they, they definitely do. You know, you, you talk about rating as an engagement. I think, you know, this is a really interesting, interesting time in, in sports. I think there was a big, the Super Bowl obviously was recently, and there was a, a big thing before the Super Bowl around how, and I, this obviously had probably some cross promotional pieces with both of them being on NBC, but the first time the Olympics and the Super Bowl were going on at the same time. I think, you know, it's a really interesting time in sports, right? But the Super Bowl. NBA All-Star Game in the Winter Olympics, you think of, you know, I always think of, of 
sort of the fall is, is some of the best time when you have the end of baseball and the beginning of football and those things. But this has been a really interesting time in sports. But it, you know, one thing that doesn't have a ratings problem and an engagement problem is is the Super Bowl, right? And I think that that this year it was certainly helped in the sense that the play on the field and in the competition was very good. But not only that, the, the stories around you know the players that were involved in the Super Bowl, whether that be you know Joe Burrow and Matthew Stafford and his move and and, and the things there. And so the Super Bowl, while on a much less global scale than the Olympics. Um, doesn't necessarily sometimes face the same problem does in some sense but doesn't necessarily face some of the same problems that the olympics runs into i think it's well it's interesting you say that about the super bowl obviously there were some concerns that the super bowl relatively speaking had some issues last year when it had under 100 million total viewers this year i think it's closer to 112 million but i think it yeah i mean it's kind of like um it's an interesting point is a is this a boy who cried wolf sort of situation right sports is is driving television consumption generally, obviously. I think it's over 90 of the top television programs are sports programs. Obviously, the NFL is the biggest driver of that, where the NFL by itself is a huge portion of the top 100 programs for the year. So it's it's both weird to say that television ratings are down, uh, potentially in, in, in a couple different sports, and we're down in 2021, less so in 2020, down in 2020, less so in 2021. But the idea is that you know, sports, you know, even though the Winter Olympics was down generally, it was still achieving some of the highest ratings on a nightly basis for NBC as compared to other primetime programming. But it does show, and it does show your right to point out the Super Bowl and the Olympics working together and that this was one of the first times that uh, the broadcaster highlighted another sport in the window after the Super Bowl aired. Typically, they want to highlight some one of the whether it's drama or comedy or a different type of content type their original programming is typically featured in that window after the super bowl because that typically gets the highest viewership of any program uh for the year uh, from a, or at least now it does for you know original programming and the idea that the uh nbc put the winter olympics on right after the super bowl just show a that that was their most significant or arguably most significant programming but also that you know just how important sports is to the overall television ecosystem so it's weird it's like this is something that again is something i think that is an interesting conversation that's going to resonate for long after the olympics the olympics highlights it but you know we're, we keep saying well sports is down we got to think about content consumptions yet it's still the high even the ratings are down generally um and pay uh particularly um pay tv seems to have issues in terms of cable uh, providers and pay subscriptions potentially declining somewhat it's still driving significant revenues significant viewership significant uh aggregator of audiences that are attractive to companies particularly from an advertising and partnership perspective so um you know, I, it's a cliche to say it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, but it's some version of that in sports. And clearly, there will be some upcoming rights negotiations, both uh, domestically and globally. And those are something we recommend our students and listeners of the uh, podcast more generally to take a look at is, you know, you see rights negotiations, you see that uh, we've seen the NF, the NBA's rights will be, um, particularly media rights are coming up soon. Um, there's uh, on the college level, the Big Ten rights are coming up soon. Mm -hmm. uh, globally, uh, there's been a number of different leagues that have looked at extensions of rights, uh, particularly when it comes to whether it's soccer, rugby, um, 
uh, or various different other sports that are, have seen negotiations for their television rights. There's a lot of, and this is something we talked about a little bit offline, but uh, um, you know, there's a number, of, there's a lot of private capital, whether that's uh, private equity, venture, uh, institutional investors who are, who are looking to make, still make investments into sports because of the potential upside of these media rights deals. Um, so yeah, it really is. It's really an interesting best of times, worst of times situation, particularly when it comes to sports media. You're right in the sense that sports in so many ways is really the last appointment viewing that we have. And I think all the things you highlighted kind of made me think of one thing around, you know, if you think back historically, it's not necessarily, you know, ratings are down, but they're still some of the highest rated shows. But we've shifted to, to much less of a monoculture type society, right? Whereas if you look back, you know, when our parents this may show our age too but you know something like mash right like i remember my my old man talking about how the series finale of mash literally every human being on in in america watched that right well nothing is like that anymore and and so you're right in the sense that ratings are down but down compared to what in some senses right i mean dad they're down historically you know but still like you said it's driving engagement across the other more than the other types of content overall and the other thing too is there's so many different avenues to consume it and you 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 know deal in this day to day and i think would have a, a a different view or more specific view on this but we've talked about this before of you know in this in the phase of life that that i'm in or both of us are in a lot of people that that our listeners are in it's hard sometimes to sit down and watch a four-hour football game right but doesn't mean that I don't engage with it, whether that's through, you know, social media or some other way or view it in a streaming capacity for the, 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 you know, short snippets that I can. And I think that, you know, is that different than sitting in front of your couch collectively with a bunch of people? Yeah, it's different, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not consuming that content in some way. Yeah, and that we, I mean, I mentioned, so uh, venture capital, private equity, uh, institutional investment, private capital more generally. Um, there's been a lot of investment into clips, short form content, and how does the intersection of sports and short form content um, in terms of its success, plus the rise of whether it's whistle or overtime, um, in terms of you know different ways that people are looking to consume content, either shorter, particularly shorter form content, which those companies had originally focused on, or overtime, looking at the combination of both shorter form potentially and longer form content with the overtime uh, basketball league that it started for uh, high school students uh, who are potentially um, NBA draft picks. You know, I think it's it's an interesting. Um, you know, it, it's definitely going to be interesting whether you know, um, whether you're at a certain stage of life, like you and I are in terms of just having young families, or if you're in, you know, if you're obviously, um, in your you know, millennial Gen Z, which are used to consuming short form content or streaming content in more, whether, you know, it's, whether it's TikTok or Instagram reels, or, um, e- even just short form content on other social media platforms, you know, whether it's snap or Twitter or Facebook or otherwise. Um, also the idea of, streaming from a gaming perspective, particularly you know, the rise of Twitch and YouTube and um, esports leagues coming into play and being able to, you know, monitor, um, you know, esports has at times tried to adopt more traditional models, particularly a franchise-based model at times of embrace streaming through tw- Twitch and YouTube faster and a direct-to-consumer content perspective. So yeah, there's just a lot going on. And that's one of the things it's good to have all these different perspectives within the context of our program. Um, do you understand, you know, one of the things we talk about, you know, and we've talked about repeatedly in these podcasts, 
It's the idea of, you know, everybody needs to be a chief technology officer, not to understand the ins and outs and nuts and bolts of technology per se. Probably shouldn't say nuts and bolts when it comes to technology. But the idea is that the idea of looking at strategy, looking at impact and being able to communicate that impact um, is something that we really focus on in terms of what is the impact on the business um, from a revenue and brand perspective of these technologies and on these platforms and how do they drive metrics and tangible results that then can be communicated to senior decision makers. Yeah. You, you circling back to sort of one thing you mentioned about those rights deals, right? I mean, I think so much hinges on these rights deals coming up. You mentioned the NBA is coming up soon. Yeah, several from, from, you know, European leagues. It, it will be so interesting to see who throws their hat in the ring for these things, right? We look historically, you see, the large broadcast networks, right? And they have a vested interest in, in wanting to have that content and have that content on their air because as you mentioned, right? Primetime advertising dollars are where revenue is driven. But to me, and I think, you know, one of the larger topics from a, a sp- overall sports landscape perspective is, well, you know, what happens when when someone, what are these, Twitch, right? Is, is an Amazon-owned product, Amazon-owned platform. You know, they they if they get into... Uh, the dealings with those rights deals, right? What happens if one of these major sports leagues is is broadcast on Twitch, and how does that impact uh, the generational divide and, and the viewers, or does it expand the reach? I mean, I think how those things shake out from a rights perspective will be really interesting. But I also wonder, and you may have an interesting view on this, of do those rights deals get sectioned out in some way, meaning that it's still going to sit on broadcast television? Right for a certain sect of fans, but it you know could be some of those leagues could be on on and, and some are doing it anyway, but on different platforms like a Twitch, like a YouTube, uh, like you know directly on on an Amazon Prime or even something like a Twitter. And I think that that'll be really interesting to see how those are sectioned out and who eventually gets those rights. Yeah, I think it's still not you know I think that's that's we're in the process of figuring that out now um, in terms of. Yeah, I think for the time being, major professional sports organizations, both uh, domestically and abroad, are looking at a a multiple model they want to be able to leverage and um, leverage both. They want to leverage traditional broadcasts from the guaranteed revenue streams and currently the broad, uh, even still as compared to uh, direct-to-consumer offerings, a relatively broad audience and high number of uh, people who watch on more traditional platforms and then still take advantage of the opportunities to uh, potentially uh, reach uh, audiences through direct-to-consumer platforms. There's an interesting piece recently by John Wall Street of Sportico. Um, He talked about the WWE's transition from having its own direct-to-consumer product to licensing that product through uh, Peacock, which is uh, NBC's uh, streaming platform. And the idea being that, um, you know, as companies like Amazon enter, whether it's Amazon, Apple, Disney, you know, more forcefully enter the, the direct-to-consumer space, you know, can, in, originally the idea, and WWE was a pioneer of this, was that the, the, the leagues themselves potentially were considering taking back their rights so that they, they would own the direct-to-consumer platform and you know sort of so to speak cut out the uh, broadcasters because you know obviously if the broadcasters are willing to pay x dollars and for them to make a profit they need to make x plus one dollars and if the if they are making x plus one dollars why couldn't you know the leagues are the ones who are taking all the risks so to speak in terms of creating the leagues and creating the content why couldn't they just capitalize on their own content and create their own direct to consumer platforms what wwe found out which is not you know given the level of investment that companies like amazon 
or Disney or Apple are willing to make into streaming. And given how fast the technology evolves, that it was better for WWE to potentially license the content to Peacock, see how that goes. And then when the rights are up again in 2026, either potentially bring them in house, but more likely see if, if there are, uh, renew them with Peacock or see if there's other platforms that can help them grow their audience base. It's the same thing with, um, you know, so I think that's probably more, whether it's, you know, we were talking about maybe traditional broadcasts, it's probably more, the transition is more likely to be more like what the WWE has done is that um, the transition will be to license content to, um, you know, companies that have put the technology and infrastructure in place and can eventually, if not now, get to the point of view of, of the scale that traditional broadcast television has. Um, what's interesting from that perspective, um, you know, A, are there, will it be, uh, you know, potentially consolidation in that space, but also, um, you know, is, right, how willing is, you know, our, you know, Net, Netflix, Amazon's, uh, 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 Disney's, Apple willing to make investments in the sports content. Originally, it didn't seem like there was that big of an appetite. Now there's much larger of an appetite, particularly as they make more investments into their streaming platforms. And just as, you know, sports contents helps traditional ad broadcasters, um, we're seeing an impact, whether it's uh, the WWE with Peacock or UFC with ESPN Plus, that sports is really a huge, or uh, globally with Cricket and Disney Hotstar and the impact of Cricket on Disney Hotstar subscriber uh, mm -hmm. signups. It's all over the world that sports are helping to drive streaming and streaming seems to be where um, both at, on its own as part of a potential conversion to Web3 or Metaverse, um, that leveraging streaming content and developing IP through streaming platforms is something these are also uh, these companies are making huge investments in. And then a company like Amazon, um, you know, obviously are leveraging sports content or Amazon or Apple to further co uh, increase consumption of other products. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, Amazon, particularly in the UK, uh, but I think throughout the world, you know, the idea of um, using sports content to increase prime subscribers, which is one of their biggest profit generators um, outside of AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services is something that sports content has, has a huge impact. So it's definitely a story that's very much at the beginning phases and in process and certainly what we want to take a look at going forward. Yeah, it really is the beginning phases. You know, as being someone who works in that direct-to-consumer streaming space yeah. every day, exactly. it's hard. It's hard to build a streaming service, not only from an underlying technology perspective, but and eyeballs and how you get that in front of people, because we all as consumers get in such ingrained patterns. And that's why, you know, WWE is a great use case of that to say, hey, we went directly to consumers. And there's obviously always a, a, a niche group of ardent fans that are there. Right. Um, you know, in, but to see it go back and license those those rights to Peacock is interesting because it kind of pulls some of those things back. And as you said, I think we're going to see multiple iterations of that, right? Whether it's, it's completely direct to consumer, whether it's licensing to other platforms or whether it's some hybrid model of the two, you know, the goal, the end goal is to get customers in, in front of it. You know, I think it's an interesting parlay into, in, to me, a league that does a really good job of this and creating some of those, that, that sort of short form content and things that are really easily consumable is the NBA, right? And if you look recently with the NBA All-Star Game, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to consume the entire NBA All-Star Game, but I saw Steph Curry make all 13 of those threes, right? In multiple, on multiple different platforms because the, they were chunked up and, and shown. And I think the NBA has embraced a lot of those, you know, I think you and I talked about this the last time we talked of, I, I was listening to an interview with Mark Cuban and they asked him about his son watching Dallas Mavericks games. He said, yeah, he watches them all, but he doesn't watch them on 
linear broadcast television, right? He watches them through TikTok or, or, or Instagram reels or those types of things. And so I think the NBA has done an amazing job of getting in front of that or at least testing the waters of all of them. Yeah, I think it's probably... Well, first we should say that I think he made sixteen, not thirteen threes. So oh, sorry, step. sixteen. Sorry, I think I think we'll double check that. But I, I think mean, it's sixteen, not thirteen. But regardless, uh, I mean, it's a lot. Regardless, right? Exactly. <laughs> but um, it probably is a good place to wrap up. It's kind of like what you're saying, right? It's like this is a story, you know. You and I think this is something that particularly students in your class really benefit from the fact that you are working on this particular issue on a day to day basis. Is something again that is one of the features of the program at Northwestern. It is, you know you're getting industry um, professionals who are working on the core challenges of the industry on a day-to-day basis. You know, obviously streaming is a humongous uh, strategic issue and it's part of the central, uh, both now and going forward, the central uh, conceit of, you know, whether it's from a revenue, brand, investment, all of the core things that people are talking about and thinking about um, are, you know, or a lot of it is based around streaming content consumption and building streaming platforms and this idea, how do you best monetize uh, content and intellectual property leveraging direct-to-consumer models that you're obviously very familiar with. So it's a, always good for us to plug the program. So I guess we've done that successfully. <laughs> Probably a good place, to, good place to wrap up now that we've done Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> no, you're right, and, and it it was it was good to, and really good to catch up, and really good to catch up around some of these these topics. I think you know, especially with so much going on, it's really interesting to get your take around the Olympics and the NBA and, and the Super Bowl. But you know, we'll be back in in the coming weeks with with great interviews from myself and and from Adam, and and you know, we appreciate the time to to discuss these things and, and looking forward to to talking about more of them in the future. Thanks, Brace. Good, good to talk to you.